O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Leanne. You may be seated. Let's pray together. To our eternal triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one who made a way to gather your people under your wings, you are an exceedingly great and wonderful God. Without beginning or end, sovereign over all that was, is, and ever will be. And we readily acknowledge that your thoughts and your ways are so much higher than our own. And even as we acknowledge that, we praise and we say thank you that when you could have remained so far from us, you did not, but you drew near and you made yourself known to us through your word and through your son. You redeemed us from sin, death, hell, and the grave through the cross, and you made us your people. Not only that, Father, but you also brought us together as this body, as Redeemer Church. And for that, we are very grateful. And we ask for your help to continue to go forward in wisdom and in unity in and obedience to you in all the things that you call us to, in our own lives and as a congregation. Help us to love and serve one another well, to love and serve our community well, and to be salt and light as you have called us to be wherever you may place us. Help us and help all of your people today and every day to remember that you are greater than and transcend any worldly thing that would seek to divide us you are greater than and have conquered the enemy who would seek to devour us. You are greater than anything that would tempt us to take our eyes off of you. Help us to never forget that. And now as we prepare to hear your word, I pray that you would shake us from our slumber and help us to never grow cold toward it or toward you. Rather, we ask to hear you not me, but you speak clearly this morning. So whatever comes out of my mouth that is of you, would you help us to hear, to grow in knowledge of, love for, and obedience to you? And For anyone here today who does not yet know you as Savior and Lord, would you use this time to draw them to yourself and do the saving work that only you can do? And for us all, please cause your word to enrapture our hearts, captivate our minds, and transform our lives so that others would see you in us, and that you would be glorified in every single thing we think, say, and do. It is in the name of your Son, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we ask these things. Amen. Good morning. If you haven't already done so, go ahead and take your Bibles and open them to Matthew chapter 23. If this is your first time at Redeemer, or if you're joining us for the first time in a while, we are continuing 
to work our way through the book of Matthew. And today, we come to the end of chapter 23 before Pastor Jamie returns next week to begin chapter 24 in what we know as the Olivet Discourse. Now, one consequence of him taking chapter 24 next week is that it required Pastor LJ last week and I this week to divide up the end of chapter 23 in such a way that if you're coming to the passage cold, it might sound a little bit strange to you. And that's okay. We're going to work through the context of it in just a moment. But it also means that he and I had to coordinate a little more closely even than normal to make sure we didn't overly duplicate one another. He was very gracious last weekend. He called me on Saturday as he was finishing up his own preparation and said, hey, can I run through just my introduction with you to make sure I'm not totally stepping on your toes? So he got through it and I said, well, other than the fact that you did exactly what I planned to say and way better than I planned to say, it's great, wonderful, good job. Uh, you know, my jealousy of his preaching abilities notwithstanding, he did a phenomenal job both, both of setting the context for what's going on in this passage and then just bringing it home. So I would strongly encourage you, if you have not yet had a chance to go listen to his whole sermon from last week, that you make the time to do so. It will be good for you. Uh, today, however, it is equally important that we do understand the context around this passage so that we can understand what Jesus is saying. So I want to back up and kind of recapitulate and elaborate on some of what LJ said last week so that we can maximally benefit this week from the full scope of today's passage. So remember with me, what is the book of Matthew about? Jesus, you win Sunday school forever, Leanne. Good job. That's good. Yes, it is about Jesus. There are a number of right answers we could give here, but some of the big themes we've seen over these last many, many months is the book, in Matthew in particular, he's trying to show us that Jesus is God's promised Messiah. He is the fulfillment of God's many long-awaited promises to his people. And he's especially highlighted this theme over and over again of the kingdom of God, what it is, who's in, who's out, what does it mean to be a part of this kingdom? What will our lives look like the more we become a part of God's kingdom? And so as LJ shared again so wonderfully last week, as we come to the end of chapter 23, we're, we're coming to the end of this three-chapter arc that's, that's run through 21, 22, and 23 that for us here at Redeemer began more than three months ago when Pastor Jamie preached the start of chapter 21 on July 23rd. But for those who lived the events we've been reading about, this is Tuesday. What a Tuesday, right? What, what, what so much has been going on? And specifically, this was the Tuesday of what historic church tradition has referred to as Holy Week or Passion Week because it's the week that narrates the events leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection. Now, if you've grown up in the church depending on your particular tradition, you are probably used to observing you know, Resurrection Sunday, Good Friday, Palm Sunday, maybe, maybe even Maundy Thursday, again, depending on what you've done. I'm gonna go out on a limb and assume that most of us have probably not spent three months digging into Holy Tuesday, right? Not a common experience. Why? Well, among other reasons, the, the seven woes do not make for great Hobby Lobby signs. That just does not inspire us. Nobody wants to eat in the kitchen with the sign that says, woe to you, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside it's full of hypocrisy and greed and bitterness. Like, nobody's eating in that kitchen, right? The more I'm thinking about it, though, that would be an amazing kitchen sign. If that shows up in the Redeemer kitchen next week, I'm just saying, I'm not taking it down. So we'll see what happens there. More seriously, though, if you've ever wondered how the story can go from the people singing literal hosannas 
And Jesus' praise as he enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday in chapter 21 to his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion just four days later, you have to understand what has transpired in these last three chapters. You don't have to turn to each of these passages and, and with apologies for the lengthy but I think necessary introduction. Let's just review really briefly what's happened to bring us to this moment. So remember chapter 21, it's Sunday. Jesus enters Jerusalem on a colt and the crowds shout, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And hang on to that specific phrase because you heard it this morning and it's going to be important when we come to point three later this morning. So then the next day, Monday, Jesus clears the temple, and this is where he declares, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And it goes on to say that the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Well, now that seems like an odd response to Jesus doing these things, but we see the seeds of their discontent planted here, and we know it's going to sprout quickly into a murderous rage. So let's continue after this, beginning in chapter 21, verse 23, and all the way up through today's passage. Everything that we read takes place on Tuesday, and very importantly, at the temple. Don't miss that detail, because for Israel, for the nation of Israel and for the Jewish people at this time, the temple was the absolute center of their universe. This was where God promised to dwell with them. This is where the priests and the other religious leaders were meant to be stewards of this place to point the people to God, to mediate between they and him. And so it's a, it's a savage irony then that when God himself walks into the midst of the temple, into the midst of the people, they miss it completely. But you can see now this, this titanic spiritual struggle that's set to transpire. So let's do a quick lightning round summary of Jesus' interactions with the chief priests and other leaders. And it consists of him asking them, excuse me, them asking him five questions and him telling them three parables. So again, this is the last several months for us, but let's just hear them in succession today. So first, they challenge Jesus about the source of his authority. But because they refuse to answer his question about the source of John the Baptist's authority, he says that I'm not going to answer you either. And then next, he tells a parable that includes telling them that because they would not obey the will of God, then the tax collectors and the prostitutes will go into the kingdom of God before they will. Then he tells another parable, and here he demonstrates how the leaders have repeatedly killed God's prophets, and he says that the kingdom of God will be taken away from them and given to a people who will bear the fruits. And in what I think is a darkly funny comment, it now says when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived he was speaking about them. Sharp bunch, this crew, they're on it. After that, one more parable. Here, it concludes with the character who represents the spiritual leaders being bound and cast into the outer darkness where he says there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then following that parable, the rest of the Nashers come in these four questions from the Pharisees and the Sadducees that are largely meant to trap Jesus. They're, they're trying to catch him any way that they can, but we know in each of them it says he marvels he astonishes, he silences them, and he tells them, you are wrong. For you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And it concludes in chapter 22 by telling us that no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did they ask him any more questions. Now again, don't forget our scene. 
all of this has taken place in the midst of the temple, and it's in full view of everybody. The crowds are here, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees are here. This is not done over in some dark corner. Everybody's watching them happen, and they tried so hard to trip up and trap Jesus, and all they've done is proven their own unfitness to lead. They have embarrassed themselves over and over and over and over again so that Jesus turns to the crowds and tells them in full view of the leaders here that while they should practice what they say, don't do what they do. Why? Because he says what they do is done in the wrong way and for the wrong reasons. He says you're not to be called rabbi or teacher or father or instructor because you will have one and that is the Christ. So having made just an absolute smoking ruin of their earthly authority, Jesus now turns from the crowds back to the scribes and the Pharisees and and not, hear, hear this, not with the sinful, uncontrolled rage that we might experience in this kind of moment, but with a settled, righteous wrath. He proceeds to declare the seven woes that we've spent the last several weeks studying. And so with that setting in mind, you can hear the divine gavel striking and pronouncing these judgments, right? Woe to you, hypocrites. Woe to you. You shut the kingdom in people's faces. Woe to you, hypocrites. You make people children of hell. Woe to you, blind guides. You focus on superficial things. Woe to you, hypocrites. You neglect mercy and justice and faithfulness. Woe to you, hypocrites. You are full of greed and self-indulgence. Woe to you hypocrites. You are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you hypocrites. You killed God's messengers. You brood of vipers. How do you think you're going to escape hell? All of these things will come on this generation. This was Tuesday. This is a pretty bleak moment in scripture, right? The people who should have known it best missed it all. And without in any way diminishing the severity and the weight of these judgments that have been pronounced, we must, must, must not miss the end of today's passage. Because in it, the Lord gives us a beautiful, beautiful insight into the heart of Jesus behind these judges that I hope will teach us this today. The severity of God's judgment is matched by and inseparable from his love and care for his people. So let the weight of the judgment press you toward and not away from him. That's the heartbeat of Jesus behind this and that's revealed here And it's also the heart of what I hope you will take away from today. So let me say it one more time. The severity of God's judgment is matched by and inseparable from his love and care for his people. So let the weight of this judgment drive and press you toward him and not away from him. And I know that may set the record for the longest sermon introduction ever. But, but I do hope it will help us more clearly see and appreciate Jesus' heart today. So with that, let's consider the text and our first point, which is this lament for the lost. Lament for the lost. Look again with me at the first part of verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. 
So who is Jesus addressing here and what is he saying? Well, when you see him doubling the words there, like where he says Jerusalem twice, in his culture, that was a way of expressing very deep emphasis. And while it's open to some interpretation, it's most likely that he's letting Jerusalem stand in here for the, for the whole nation and the people at this point. So we should hear him speaking very broadly when he says this. Also, note the use of kills here. He says, who kills the prophets. The present tense there indicates that Jesus is referring not only to their killing of the Old Testament prophets and the messengers, but to their ongoing actions in doing the same thing. And don't miss that. Because knowing that not only is Jesus referring to what they have done to the prophets who came before, but also to what they are unknowingly about to do to him, then this immediately deepens our understanding of what has come before. Because far from Jesus pronouncing those previous judgments with a, a sadistic kind of glee, we see him moved here to utter a profound lament for what has happened. You, you hear this again with, with the depth of Jesus' sorrow. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you, you killed the prophets and stoned those who were sent to it. Why? Why did you choose this path? It didn't have to be this way. And that's so important because while discussion and consideration of God's judgment is, is very disfavored in our own day, to the extent people do think about it, I fear we still far too often have this caricature where we picture God looking down from on high, just rubbing his hands like some comic book villain, just waiting to smite everyone he sees. And that's just not consistent with what we see here and throughout Scripture when it speaks of God's judgments. Consider among any number of passages that we could, places like Ezekiel 33:11, where God declares, As I live, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So please hear this, Christian and non-Christian alike this morning. The judgment of God manifested ultimately in an eternity in hell, separated from him, experiencing nothing but his wrath, is a real and a severe and a terrifying thing. And we have to grapple with it. We cannot ignore it because we don't like it. But as we said, it is inseparable from the reality that it's not his desire, either for those who would kill his son or for us, these are judgments rendered in tears. Rendered in tears. So in Jesus' lament for the lost, hear the heart of God for his people. And before we move on, I want us to consider one other issue that I think is raised by Jesus' response here. Likewise, it is important that we remember that the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, all these religious leaders, they're also not cartoonish, you know, mustache-twirling bad guys just trying to do wrong. No, far more terrifying is the realization that their rejection of Jesus is the culmination of an entire history of rejecting God's messengers, of rejecting God's prophets, not out of a desire, again, to do wrong, but because they were so convinced that they were right because everything about their culture told them that they were right, that they were almost infallible. They could not possibly be wrong in this. So here's the challenge for us today. How do we distinguish humble confidence and certainty in Jesus from a self-righteous arrogance that would push us into the exact same hubris that entrapped those leaders in Jesus' day? 
You know, we see, we see the same difficulty back in the fifth woe when Jesus is talking about the cup and the plate that are clean on the outside, but full of hypocrisy and lawlessness within. If both the filthy and clean inward cup would look the same outwardly, how do we distinguish the two? In our own lives, how do we make sure we're not that cup? How do we make sure we're not doing this thing, this same thing? To be sure, we should be spending time in the basic spiritual disciplines. Prayer, scripture reading, memorization, meditation, gathering with God's people, confessing our sins, all good things. Please don't hear me say otherwise this morning. But of course, the groups that Jesus just condemned did these things too, or at least their versions of them. But I think we get a very important hint when we consider Jesus's judgment of them. Remember, he said over and over and over again that the problem was they were doing these things for outward show and missing the condition of their hearts, which led them to committing these heinous evils. So, so not as a silver bullet, not as the only answer to this question of what do we do, but, but I think as a crucial component to our own personal piety, one very necessary thing that we must always do when we come to God's word is to always take care to pray and ask God and ask one another, how does this scripture apply to my own heart? How does the scripture apply to my own life before I get too concerned about how it applies to everybody else? And friends, that's a hard thing to pray. It's a hard posture to take. I struggle with it too. What do I mean? Well, I've had people say to me and, and, and keeping my own advice, I've often said or thought, you know, man, I really love it you know, when you preach that kind of preaching that just punches you in the gut, Right? But you know what? The older I get, the more I realize what people typically mean when they say that is, I really like it when you preach in such a way that it punches somebody else in the gut. That's good preaching right there. You know why? Because getting punched in the gut hurts. And I think the problem is for a lot of us, the last time we really got punched that way was with our kids when they're little. Like they hit you, it kind of hurts, maybe you lose your breath, but that's it. Totally different ballgame if you think of Matt Frederick or Dan Shockley punching you. If they punch me, let's be honest, I'm probably not getting up from that ever. I'm done. Guys, please don't punch me if you could help it. But, but that's what we need to think about. We're calling down these punches and this great judgment. So let me encourage you this morning. If you find yourself thinking that, if you find yourself constantly coming to God's word, whether in your own time with it, when you hear it preached, and your first thought is how that judgment will land on others, then remember Jesus's lament for the lost whom he just condemned here in part because they failed, failed to see how they fell short. And pray that he would help you see how the word applies in your own heart and life that you might not receive the same judgment. You know, this, this always calls to mind for me the words of the famed Russian dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He, he said it this way. He said, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. If only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? That is certainly true of my own heart. But praise God, not the heart of Jesus. And as we continue to move through this passage and into his heart, we see not only that he laments for those who are lost, but he possesses an active and protective love for his people that if they will receive it, will be theirs 
And that brings us to our second point, a mother's love. A mother's love. Look back at the second half of verse 37 with me. How often would I have gathered you, your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. This is an interesting sentence and there are three things here that I think we need to see. The first may not be obvious at first glance, but Jesus makes a subtle reference to his divinity here, to the fact that he is God. What do I mean? Well, consider again the scope and severity of the judgments that he's just pronounced over Jerusalem. Well, now we see him saying, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen does under her wings? He's positioning himself as the one who is able and who desires to gather and save them from this judgment. But you know who's the only person who can save and deliver from God's judgment? That's God himself. So in expressing this, Jesus is revealing and identifying himself as someone who is able to affect this salvation. And that's good news for us because it means this is not just mere sentiment he's expressing. He's saying, and I could have done it and I would do it if you had been willing. That's the first thing we need to see here is he's saying, I am the God who can save in this way. Second, I think we need to see this deeply protect, excuse me, protective love that Jesus possesses for his people that he compares to that of a hen gathering her chicks under her wings. And, and I think this is such a fascinating and, and encouraging analogy because it gives us a, a real kind of tactile feel for the strength of God's love for us. Because have you ever seen a mother hen guard her chicks? It's a fearsome thing. She will do anything for them up to and including laying down her life if she must. Well, that ought to sound familiar to us as Christians. That should resonate, right? I love how theologian Michael Bird puts it in his evangelical theology. He says, the cross of Christ is like the wings of a hen that shields her young from the flames of a barnyard fire. It is that protective love for us. Now, as a quick aside this morning and to forestall any questions or concerns, because there's a whole debate out there about how we, we can conceive of, relate to, and worship God because of imagery like this, and I'm happy to talk about that with you offline. We don't have time to go all into it today. But Scripture clearly teaches, and we believe that God has existed eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Scripture does not shy away from using feminine maternal imagery like this, often in depicting the nature of God's love. So what does that mean? It means that while on the one hand, we are not free to conceive of and relate and worship God in any way that we want, we have to do so as he has revealed himself to us. It also means that we should remember that scripture teaches that men and women are both and all created fully in the image of God and that what is good in us both comes from him and helps us to image him. So when scripture uses maternal imagery like this as an example of God's love, I think it is because in general, not universally, but in general, there is an especial fierceness to a mother's love. There's a reason that the mama bear analogy exists, right? We've seen this. In fact, we were just reminded of this this weekend in our house, and I got Brittany's permission to share this story, but she was just having a sad mom moment. Kids are growing up, time is going really, really fast, and it just kind of hit her, and it, it was just not a, not a good day for her. And so our kids, being teenagers, didn't quite grasp why this was the case, and one of them asked, like, what's going on? And she said, I'm just not okay, and my mom wasn't okay, and, and we're gonna get there. And this child turned to me and said, yeah, Dad, it seems like you're handling this a lot better than Mom, to which I said, in love, yeah, I can't wait for you to go away. It's gonna be amazing. In love, in love, I can't wait for them to grow up and go on. It's gonna be fine, wonderful. But, you know, we laugh, and of course, I deeply love my children most of the time. But I tell them 
often, look, outside of Jesus, there is no one on earth who will ever love you as much as your mom does. And and we get that. We understand that. That's the love that Jesus is conveying here, which makes this last phrase so sad. Because right after Jesus expresses that love, he says to the people, and you were not willing. And that's the third thing we need to see in this sentence before moving to our final point. How devastatingly sad that Jesus stood ready to offer this depth of love to his people and they would not receive it. Moms and dads, some of of you know this. There are few griefs more piercing than the spurn of the love by your child. And I don't say that to be maudlin this morning. I, I say it to prompt us to consider the profound nature of God's love for us that he's offered to us, and and to prompt us to consider whether, unlike Jesus' original audience here in chapter 23, we are willing to be gathered under his wings. Will we receive that love this morning? And that brings us to our final point, hope in the ruins. Hope in the ruins. Look once more at verses 38 and 39 with me. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, these are some very significant statements, and I want to highlight two things in them. The first is the absolutely devastating declaration that he makes in verse 38. There he declares, see, your house is left to you desolate. Now, given the context, it is possible for a house here to mean it could have meant the physical temple, It could have meant Jerusalem, the whole nation. Ultimately, the point is the same regardless. But simply, from a visual standpoint, remember again our setting. Jesus is standing in the midst of the literal temple saying, your house, your house is left to you desolate. Can you even imagine? This is the temple. This is where God was supposed to dwell with his people. Jesus even referred to it as his house in chapter 21, but now he says, your house is left to you desolate. And here that can carry the connotation also of being abandoned. They thought it was God's house. They put their hope in its physical presence among them, but he has abandoned it. And we see that happen immediately in chapter 24, verse one, when it says, Jesus left the temple. And with the hindsight of history, we know that in AD 70, when Emperor Titus, or the future Emperor Titus, leads the Roman army in, they will lay waste to Jerusalem, including utterly destroying the temple. So at this point, you may be wondering, Austin, your title for this point is really weird. Why hope in the ruins? Seeing the ruins, not the hope. Well, I did so because in the ashes of this desolation, there is a spark of hope, and we must not miss it today. Because you see, Jesus may have left the temple, the physical temple grounds desolate, but a new reminder of an old promise arises in 1 Corinthians 3.16, where scripture asks, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And 2 Corinthians 6.16 declares, as foretold and promised in Ezekiel 11, we are the temple of the living God. And God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. But how? How will this be the case? How will this flicker of hope become reality? We'll note again Jesus' last words in verse 39. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
And, and this is less a, a prophetic and predictive statement than it is Jesus explaining what must be to see him. You see, while he has just declared their house desolate, now he turns to say, if you would see me, if you would see me again, you must say and believe, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And I told you way back in the introduction that this phrase would be important, and here we are. There are those who read this as having kind of an immediate fulfillment following Jesus' resurrection. And there are others who interpret it as having more of a, an eschatological bent looking toward the time when, as Philippians 2 tells us, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I think it's possible that both, frankly, are in view. But either way, the question put before us is the same. Who will we say Jesus is? You know, that phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, has a long history in Scripture. And in fact, it goes all the way back to Psalm 118, verse 26. In that psalm, it's one of joy, and thanksgiving and salvation, and, and time does not permit us to read all of it, but I do want to read verses 21 through 27 because I think it will help shed greater light on today's passage. So hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 118. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light shine upon us. Jesus is declaring here that he is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He is the one who will save them. He is the one whose light will shine on them. Will they say, blessed are you? who comes in the name of the Lord. But of course, we just heard the people say that. They just said this in chapter 21, two days ago. But it wasn't sufficient. Why? Because as these last two chapters have demonstrated, it was not enough to simply mouth the words when they didn't understand who he was. Now that he has shown them, they will not see him again until they declare it in faith and trust in him. So of course, friends, we find ourselves in the same position today. As I, as I prayed and kind of labored over this passage and this sermon this week, I, I tried so hard to think of some like clever, creative way to end this. And the Lord really convicted me there that, you know what, that's, that's sinful of me. You don't need my cleverness. You don't need my creativity, meager as they are in any way. No, we need Jesus. That's who and what we need here. For, for those of you who were here last week, I loved how LJ framed things near the end of the sermon. He pointed out that it was a little bit like watching someone else get in trouble. You know, kind of uncomfortable because the judgment was pointed at these spiritual leaders, but he said it did prompt him to stop and reflect, okay, how can I avoid that judgment? And we need to do the same thing today because in the ruins of Jesus' judgment, here is the hope. If you're still breathing today, Jesus has not yet said to you, woe. Jesus has not yet declared that your house is left to you desolate. No, he still desires to gather you under the shelter of his wings. He still desires that you would say today, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So again, the question for us all to consider is whether unlike those spiritual leaders, we will be willing. Will we be willing to hear and believe and declare that? Friends, let me plead with you to not leave here today without considering these things. I don't care how much sin is in your life. 
I don't care how long you've wallowed in it. I don't care how deeply ensnared in it you feel. Jesus is sufficient and he is able and he is willing to forgive and restore you and we would love with great joy, nothing more than to walk with you toward him. If you wanna know the full heart of Jesus, then consider the rest of that passage from earlier in Ezekiel 33. It says there, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. May that be all of our heart's desires this morning. And even if you are here today and you are secure in your relationship with Jesus, let me urge you to walk with him, not in the arrogance of the Pharisees, but in a humble trust in him, asking him to help you see where his word would call you to greater Christ-likeness, that you might say today and forevermore, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our great God, again, the one who offers your love for those who would reject you, who says, I don't desire your death and your destruction. I desire to shelter you under my wings and to save you from the wrath that is to come. Oh God, would we not stop our ears to hear that because we've heard it so many times. Would we not stop our ears to hear that because we think we've gone too far? This day, would you make it the day of salvation? Would you bring dead hearts to life? and save those who need saving. And, and for us all, oh Lord, help, help us to see you high and lifted up, to know that you are good, that you are great, that you are above all and everything. Help us to say and to believe, blessed are you who comes in the name of the Lord. It is once more in Jesus' name and your spirit's power that we pray, amen.